Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, no doubt you've heard wonderful stories about individuals who've overcome extreme adversity. We tell those stories, we tell them as if they're heroes and heroine, and we laud the things that those people do. And all of those stories emphasize this notion of personal grit, perseverance, this growth mindset, the mental toughness, and the notion that if you have a little bit more of that grit, then you too will succeed. The question we want to ask today is, what if that is wrong? What if it's really not that straightforward? What if we've missed the conclusions for what it takes to actually build this thing called resilience? And I'm going to give you the heads up that the scientific research says it's not that simple. So the ability to deal with adversity and come out the other side, we're going to say involves three things. And we're going to focus today on what about a very narrative really needs adjusting. We're going to talk about a better framework, and then we're going to talk about how to get from here to there. My guest today is Bruce Daisley. Bruce is one of the world's leading experts on our involving relationship with their jobs, published in the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal. His first book, The Joy of Work, was a Sunday Times bestseller and is translated into 15 different international editions, shortlisted for a business book of the year. His second book has won equal success. It's called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. Boy, do we need that one, as all of my listeners know. And the latest book, the one that I think maybe is the most important book to read of the last six months, without a doubt, Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. And it's going to focus on how we really need to cope with setbacks. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here. And thank you for that lovely lovely introduction. Thank you, Wanda. With pleasure. Okay, so I have to, I am truly, let me just say right out of the outset, fascinated by this book. I read it cover to cover and loved it from front end to back end. I can't recommend it enough, but I want to start, Bruce, you write about the joy of work and about dealing with stress and about how to find less stress in our day-to-day jobs. Why did you write a book on fortitude or resilience? I'll come to that story in a moment. Yeah, um, there's there's an interesting situation I think a lot of us find ourselves in, that that resilience is just an incredibly desirable uh, quality. And so as a result of that, we hear the the word resilience all the time. We hear that children need to be more resilient, that workers who are burnt out need to be more resilient, that all of us need to find a better way to cope with the situation we're presented with. In fact, I especially encountered it. My partner is Lebanese and I found myself in Beirut in Lebanon uh, in 2020. So just in the midst of coronavirus, you'll remember in the, the first yeah. year where there were all those lockdowns and we were in the uh, the midst of Beirut when there was just this phenomenal explosion. People say it's the third biggest explosion in history after the two, um, the two bombs in Japan uh, in the Second World War. So it's the, it's the biggest peacetime explosion 
is the biggest peacetime explosion in a city. And all of the coverage at the time said, from the New York Times to the BBC, said, uh, we know one thing for certain, the Lebanese people are resilient. And I thought that's really interesting because the people here don't seem to be exhibiting some magical quality that I've not witnessed elsewhere. And so I just... I was just fixated with the frequency we were hearing the word and what it really meant. Broadly, resilience seemed to be um, this demand, this invocation, this sort of suggestion. When people had been hit with misfortune, they were told to be resilient. And it tended to feel like they were just being told to get on and deal with it. And so I just became fixated with what resilience is and Firstly, you know, it clearly does exist. We can't help but be dazzled by the bravery of the Ukrainian people and think, wow, you know, if only we could exhibit similar resilience in, in our moment of need. So it, it evidently does exist, but I don't think it necessarily exists in the places that we uh, we we summon it at, um, frequently. So, so that was my fixation, really. The um, so you know, we've talked about resilience on this show with other authors and other research and so on, and I think we are fascinated by people who have extreme stories and who overcome extreme circumstances and what it takes that they get through. So, Eric McNulty is one of the guests that I have talked to in the past, and we talked about examples of people who are in Hurricane Katrina or who wake up after the Boston Marathon bombing uh, without legs. I mean, all sorts of things that we talk about. We talk about what it is that we believe builds to resilience in those particular cases. But there is a popular narrative that says that people who are resilient just have something special that allows them to do what the rest of us cannot to do. Like there's this secret ingredient, so much so as you point out in the book, that we often try to recruit for people who have mental toughness. But I also think that there's a dark side to this one in that when I say to somebody who's got a really difficult life circumstances, you need more grit or more mental toughness. I am discounting in ways their experience of what they're going through. And I'm saying, well, if you're not out of this experience, it's down to you because you're not tough enough, as opposed to empathy or as opposed to actually helping them. Um, and it's an interesting conundrum we have from this one. One last thing I want to say is when we look at biological organisms and we ask which organisms survive and which don't, sometimes organisms survive because they adapt and sometimes they survive because they persevere. And the interesting thing from biology is we can't tell which it is. So clearly something about this thing called resilience feels like it's missing an ingredient. And I think that's where you come in. So in your view, what's wrong with our understanding of resilience? Yeah, I think um, exactly as you say there, these, uh, these times when we might summon this magical quality, this incredible superpower, and it seems not to respond, it seems not to come. I think the, the interesting thing is that an industry has built around this desire for resilience because we've witnessed it in the wild. It's a bit like when we can't necessarily breed animals in captivity. We've we've witnessed resilience out and bounded in in the wild by um, in in the aftermath of natural disasters. Exactly like you say, there was a wonderful researcher called Enrique. Quite, 
Quarantelli, uh, who who used to go to natural disasters. He used to go and explore for the US government. He used to go and explore what used to happen. He was on the first plane out when there was an earthquake. He used to go and try and understand what was what would take place. And he said the expectation inevitably was in the aftermath of a natural disaster that you would have um, some sort of survival of the fittest, people fighting each other, people become their base instinct. And in fact, far from that, effectively their their old identities had been demolished and a new collective identity was forged. And so you often find these incredible acts of kindness, um, reports of what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. People were united in the streets, talking to strangers in this sort of connected moment. And so this has got more in common with when we actually see resilience than the model that we're often told. So the US military has spent um, in excess of half a billion dollars training combat soldiers and other personnel in building resilience. Um, Similar amounts have been spent by schools around the world. And it's largely because resiliency is so hotly demanded, we've summoned it up. We've said, well, let's find someone who can bring us resilience. And what it fundamentally misses is the version of resilience we attempt to conjure up and we attempt to summon is an individual resilience, a trait of resilience. Somehow we believe that if we, we teach people to change the way they think, that somehow that this will arm them, we, we invite them to hunt the good stuff and find their positives, that this will somehow arm them uh, in a resilient way. And in fact, it, it misses one fundamental thing that sits right at the heart of resilience. Resilience is a collective strength. It's not an individual strength. And so when we see those remarkable people stepping and and surviving from natural disasters, when we see those people in Ukraine just having the strength of character to go give up their their office jobs and go and take up arms to fight an invading force, it's because... They have a collective strength. They feel emboldened by the people around them. And it's such a fundamental lesson that the fact that we step aside from it and we we try to summon this individual resilience often leaves a lot of people feeling helpless. I'll, I'll tell you, when I started writing a book on resilience, more than uh, a couple of people said to me, my work sent me on a resilience course and I don't feel any more resilient, but worse, now my boss is saying to me, what do you mean you, you still feel burnt out? You went on the resilience course. And it's because we've we've got this version of resilience that was sort of created to meet the demand for it, but that doesn't work. And it misses the fact that resilience is there for all of us to seize hold of. But it regards it, it requires us to think more like communities than individuals. It's interesting. Um, so if I go back to Eric Minolti's research, for example, one Annie or Brad Borkins telling of Arctic Antarctic adventurers. One of the qualities you see there, exactly as you say, is an individual's ability to reach out to a broad network of people, not just the immediate family around them who say, oh, it will be okay, you'll be fine. It's outside that immediate to a bigger community that often is the strength, the support, and the ideas and suggestions in the way to move forward. So it's the, even that work is reinforcing what you're saying about it's a community effort, not an individual down to an individual strength. And I think that's a really powerful, very powerful component. We'll come back to that one in a minute. I want to go back to the notion of find the good that you said. So one of the hallmarks of some of the positivity movement in the U.S., Seligman's work and others, 
And there's this lovely exercise that I often suggest people do, which is find three positive, concrete things in the day, write it down, tell somebody about it. And it does help lift your mood, okay? But it helps lift your mood. It doesn't necessarily help you build long-term resilience. So comment on this notion of finding the positive and its connection in your mind to resilience. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I think, you know, the critical thing, and Martin Seligman has been just a formidable contributor to the the body of work in psychology. And so it's by no means to diminish what he's accomplished. But I think it's worth saying that there's probably orders of magnitude. And um, generally what has been found, the experience with the US military is is probably most critical. The He was commissioned uh, as, alongside his positive psychology um, uh, organization center at um, Pennsylvania uh, Penn University. He was uh, he was commissioned to create this program for the U.S. military, and as a result of that, the a, a program was set about for up to a million uh, people employed by the U.S. military to try and train them in yeah. better resilience. Now, there's no doubt that for most of us living comfortable lives. Someone inviting us to reflect on reasons to be grateful, a gratitude diary, uh, uh, sort of framing how we've actually got a wonderful life and sometimes we need reminding of it can be a really helpful intervention. But it's worth saying that most clearly there is a lot of people who are suffering difficulties that are significantly beyond that. And uh, one of the challenges that we might find is that there are people whose lived experiences, whether these are from childhood adversity moments or whether they are from adult adverse moments, uh, there's people where merely reframing what we've experienced possibly isn't just unhelpful. Um, it, it it sort of extends beyond that. It sten- extends into um, actually being injurious for them. And I think that's the challenge that for many of us, Martin Seligman himself says that his qualification for creating a lot of his interventions is that he's by nature a depressive pessimist. And so he says, the first thing he does when he thinks of his interventions, he thinks, well, what would work on me? And I I hope it's not unfair to say that a lot of the times people in the military or people dealing with adverse childhood experiences are dealing with orders of problems of an order of magnitude that are significantly bigger than that. You know, it might be, um, you know, childhood, it might be the loss of a parent, it might be abuse that physical or or uh, sexual abuse it might be all manner of problems that they lived with if they, if you live with uh, someone who went to jail or someone who had addiction problems these things pay themselves forwards um so i think that's one of the challenges that sometimes we can forget the fact that other people's lived lived experiences leave them in a very different start place to us right that's right. I, I know in the psychological work in clinical psychology, as we're trying to de- deal with people who have PTSD or who are recovering, recovering from a sexual assault or various very big traumatic, big, big, big traumatic events, that we're finding the classic talk about it the way we would about any other more normal event is not necessarily the most effective strategy. And we're also finding those events last four years and they have um, an impact on the body, on the physical well-being. Mm. So there's a lot to be said about getting this right and getting it precisely right. 
Okay. You spend a lot of time talking about elite athletes at the very beginning, particularly coming out of the UK study on what really distinguishes elite athletes. Something I think as business leaders, we should pay a lot more attention to because these are people who are striving for best in class performance on a daily basis. And there's a lot to learn from them. But you also make the case that for many of them, they've suffered major adversity. Tell us just a little bit about your conclusions on these elite athletes and their, quote, resilience. Well, absolutely. I mean, this research really was the thing that set all of my work in in motion, because this is a remarkable piece of work commissioned by UK Sport. So forgive a a number of people switch off when they hear sport and and a number of people will probably switch off when they hear UK. Forgive me, but let me just give you an insight into what we learned from this. This piece of work tried to understand what characterized those Olympians, those competitors who ended up with a gold medal around their necks and those who were in many ways the equal of them, but never quite reached that same level. And the survey that was done was uh, by a couple of leading psychologists explored all of the differences. And the thing that was remarkable in their work was that the biggest point of differentiation was that those athletes, super elites that they styled them, who ended up with gold medals of the 16 that were studied. So obviously there's not a lot of these super elite athletes. So there's only 16 in the study of the 16 in the study. All of them had experienced a significant moment of childhood trauma or significant adverse experience of those who were in the elite level, the level below, only a quarter of them had experienced something similar. And it's a showstopper because actually the first thing that we can do is, uh, is, is look into uh, how we might witness these things in maybe athletes that we're aware of ourselves, you know, whether it's Simone Biles, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's uh, LeBron James, these some of the most accomplished athletes and, and performers in the world have got very significant trauma in their childhoods. And, um, and we sort of discount that, you know, we love the highlights reel. We love what can all of us learn from this remarkable competitor? What can we learn from this person who's standing, holding a trophy on, on the stage or a, uh, a winner's medal? What can we learn from them? And we often delete the fact that deep inside their psyche is often something that's left a hole, that's left, um, that's that's created, it's it's excavated a hole that their performance, their endeavours, attempts to fill. And I think that's what we often skip over. You know, as the author of the survey said, in the, I think in the, the most recent Olympics, there were around 300 gold medals. And out of a population of 8 billion people, 300 people, we would be silly to presume that these are normal people. And these are people who are going to behave like you or I when it came to their attitudes, their motivations. Generally, what you discover is that they have these motivations that really are shaped by a strong sense of identity. They are often trying to resurrect a sense of identity based on their endeavors because of some of the challenges, some of the traumas that they've experienced in childhood. Yeah, it's interesting. And you also talk about the obsessive, um, single-minded obsession, something we've seen in entrepreneurial leaders as well, that willing, that just, I'm going to do it at all costs and some other ways. 
Okay. Now, one of the things that you raise in light of all of this is this question of, you know, we always say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but you have a chapter title called what doesn't kill you may kill you. (laughs) What's this balance between, is it really good to put ourselves under extreme stress and come out the other end or not? Yeah, well, and I I guess, you know, this goes to the heart of the grit idea. The, The grit idea is, Angela Duckworth's work uh, is is the notion that persisting and and striving to accomplish something is ultimately how excellence is created. Uh, this really interesting study on this done in India, where they studied uh, young girls actually, and they measured the stress levels of young girls as they strived to accomplish uh, major achievements. And w- what they found was that. If you strive to achieve something that is actually out of your reach, um, you can, the stress that you put your body through um, can affect your immune system. It can have an impact on your, your general sense of well-being. And so absolutely, you know, it's, it speaks to what a delicate Goldilocks zone there is about getting this right, because it appears that a little bit of pressure and stress is actually helpful to us, but an excessive amount tends to prove counterproductive. And of course, you know, this is everyone's challenge when it's trying to work out these things. But I think it's just a reminder that sometimes um, making excessive demands on us, on our our children, on our friends, isn't necessarily as productive and as helpful as we might imagine. That push, it reminds me um, many years ago, the notion of big, audacious, hairy goals um, that, you know, leaders, what you would do is set this astronomical goal for your team that felt completely unachievable. You never expected them to achieve, but having this goal out there would really push them to success. And all I ever did was see it push people to exhaustion, frustration, cynicism, and a whole bunch of other things. Fortunately, we have to have abandoned the BHAG, as it was called, Big Harry Audacious Goal, in favor of something that feels like it's a little bit more attainable. But it's a fair Um, question, right? Because this right now, the experience of work for so many people is uh, a lot of targets, quotas, demands upon us. And it's no surprise that we're also in an era where a lot of people are experiencing overwhelming burnout. They're feeling there's not enough hours in the day to get things done. And, you know, there's, there's these strange paradoxes that sit right at the heart of work right now. One of the things you'll probably know is, um, I, I'm certainly old enough to, to remember the era, the day almost, when email came into uh, the, the, our first colleague's mobile phone, a cell phone. And uh, the, people gathered around because John had got email on his cell phone. And we all tried to work out exactly how we would go to the IT desk and get a, a BlackBerry or get uh, email on our own devices. And what we found is that in the 15 years that that first took place and when BlackBerry's and Windows mobile devices first arrived, the average working day went up two hours a day. But then in addition, during the pandemic, we've witnessed the average working day go up by an additional 45 minutes. So we've created this version of work, which um, simultaneously feels like we're on a hamster wheel that we never get anything done, but feels far more of our waking life than it ever did in generations before. So, you know, these challenges that work is creating are, are, are most definitely real are huge, very huge. All right. Um, 
I want to shift then. So we've been talking about what's wrong with our current story, our narrative about resilience, largely saying that it's down to the individual, just persevere, get tough-minded, focus, singular narrative, don't need anybody. If you haven't succeeded, it's because you haven't tried enough story to recognizing that it's something else. So what is it actually? Yeah, well... Uh, I think it's an, an important ask, you know, for me, um, uh, fortitude, as I call it, but resilience is all about a combination of identity, control and community. Um, and, you know, to, to go through them, maybe to start with control, um, what we generally find is a sense of personal control is probably the biggest predictor of our well-being when we feel overwhelmed, unable to cope. Maybe your experience of that is merely feeling like um, financially you can't cope or that you open your calendar on a Monday morning or even, heaven forbid, on a Sunday night. And you think, when am I meant to get my work done tomorrow? I've got back-to-back meetings all day. and Or you've got an inbox that's got 700 emails in it. All of these things contribute to a sense that we're, we're not in control. And what we find is that when we don't feel control, it seems to be it's the, it's the biggest determinant of our well-being. And the other two components of fortitude of resilience are a sense of personal identity. And we witness that for its strength in those elite athletes when they channel their identity into their accomplishments. It propels them to incredible achievement, but it also exposes them to a sense that when those achievements end, they really question their self-worth. You know, these <laughs> a huge number of NBA players and, and NFL players that within two years of finishing their careers, get divorced. And, you know, their identity has shifted. They no longer feel that they are uh, the, the accomplishments that they previously had. But, you know, understanding the impact that our identity has on us is a really critical component of the final part, which is a sense of community. And generally, we use our personal identity as an entry point, an access point to connect with the people around us. Um, we see ourselves reflected in the, those around us. We see ourselves supported by those around us. And sometimes that can be because we feel um, represented by the people around us. And sometimes it just can be that we see them as complimenting us. But I think understanding these things, uh, firstly, and, and understanding really at the heart of it, that if we're going to feel resilient, as one person in my research said, you can't feel resilient on your own, can you? And I think it's such a fundamental truth that the moment we accept you can't feel resilient on your own, can you? It helps us reframe some of the huge mistakes we've felt in the past about this magical property that we seek. It's interesting. Those are three very powerful components, identity, control, community. And I love your quote, you can't feel resilient on your own. I also love one of the other quotes in the book, which is um, the trauma or the pain or the stress that you feel is not your identity it is your experience and separating those two out is exactly, I think, of what you mean by identity control and community. All right. If I roll that forward to think about what's happening in our modern organization and thinking about how as leaders, we help people think about identity or think about control or think about community it strikes me that there's a whole lot of implications of things we are to be doing, both for ourselves and for the people that work with us in the organization. And at that cliffhanger, it's a perfect moment to take a break. 
So with me today is Bruce Daisley. The book we are talking about is Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. The argument here is that resilience doesn't come because you have personal grit, determination, or mental toughness. It comes because you think constructively about your identity, about the control that you have in your world, and about the community in which you operate. You don't experience resilience on your own. And we'll be right back to talk about what that means for business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Connect with us and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. 
With me today is Bruce Daisley. The book we're talking about is Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. I should mention that um, Bruce also has a number of other books that I recommend. One is called The Joy of Work, which was a Sunday Times bestseller. And there's another one called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job. Both uh, fascinating stories. But today we're focused on fortitude. Fortitude is the reframed version of resilience in Bruce's notion. And it has three identities that are interrelated, or three components that are interrelated identity, control, and community. All right. So Bruce, before I really dive in to say, what does this mean we do as leaders? I want to take an example. So give me a more normal human example of, let's start with control. What does control, what does somebody do when they have a sense of control? Yeah. There's there's really interesting research that just goes to show a part of this. One of the things that I often find when I, I talk to people who maybe run their own business or um, or maybe uh, um, they're trying to, to get an endeavor they're working on to succeed. And they tell me, you know, I hear all these things about burnout or about sort of how human energy is finite, but I seem to be able to keep going. I seem to be able to do these things. And in fact, there was some work studying nurses that tried to understand this. And what they discovered was that Often our experience, certainly in the short term, our experience of work can be determined by um, some conscious decision. If we feel like we are choosing to do the work, if we feel like it's a decision to stay up all night and paint, paint the, the spare bedroom, if we feel like it's our decision to, to end work all weekend to get a project done, then it seems like, certainly in the short term, um, our body protects us from those things. It sort of tries to allow us to push through. And it's when we feel like we're not choosing to do those things that it has a really a bigger bearing on us. And it's just an illustration, really, that um, a, a sense of personal control is often subjective, but it has a huge bearing. There's some grim animal experiments in the, in the history of understanding this. But one of them is that um, scientists immobilized rats in water and by injecting them with Botox. So these poor rats were sort of ex exposed to, to feeling helplessness underwater. But when the rats were given some wood to chew on, their experience was transformed. They, they actually, just that mere ability to do something or feel like they could, they could offset their experience in some way, reduce their stress from them. And it's just an in indication, really, that sometimes it's illusory, but when we feel like we've got some control over the situation we're in it has a really positive bearing on our well-being the strange thing about this is that we find that these a ripple effect um, parents who don't have a lot of control in their day-to-day -day job tend to be more controlling of their children so this is really unfortunate if you've got someone who is given very strong uh controls demands in their job they're told you must do this at this time you have no proviso for any leeway they tend to become slightly more authoritarian parents and in turn their kids are in the extremes more likely to be bullies at school so it seems like not only do we seek control but when we don't have it we seem to sort of pay that forwards so it's remarkable i mean you could spend a year and a day understanding the impact of this sense of personal agency on our psyche, but it seems to be one of the most potent things that impacts us. 
When we look at people who've been through traumatic events like Katrina or wake up from a bombing and find that they have no or have lost a limb, one of the things that um, succeeds for them is a sense of personal agency. And the person's agency comes from being able to take an action. Then the belief that that action is going to put me in a different state. And that different state leads to another action, another action, another action. And that is, in a small way, a sense of exercising control. Because what it means is I can do one thing. It's that feeling of helpless that I can't do anything that I think is so debilitating. And I think that's the part that you're highlighting here. So I may not have total control over the outcome or of the situation, but I have a degree of control. Now, if I roll that forward into leaders as an organization, if ever there was an argument for stopping micromanagement, that may be it. Like the single one thing we could do is to give people some small degree of control over how they do the work that they do. And do you have others, Bruce? What else can we do to give people a sense of control? Well, I mean, it's, there, there are some remarkable examples, you know, uh, in, in you've spoken there, that sort of remarkable examples that when we feel that we have any some degree of control over what we do, it can be massively uplifting. Now that might be in a work environment. One of the things that's been really interesting in the last few months is a, a few organisations have experimented with introducing meeting-free days. So what would that mean? Well, that would be that one day in the week there's no meetings in our calendar. And, you know, so this it might be that you use this to combine with days that people are actually face to face in the office. And so they can arrange personal catches, catch ups with each other. They can arrange to have a, a long lost coffee with with a colleague. Um, but there's no standing meetings, there's no scheduled meetings in their in their calendar. And what you discover is it has this transformational impact on their sense of well-being, on their sense of optimism, on their sense of productivity. And it's just an interesting example of how sometimes some real trivial interventions, some some tiny microscopic changes can have a, a real huge uplift on our sense of well-being and, and our sense of that we can cope with the challenges being thrown at us. So um, it's just an indication, really, that I think understanding this and having a, a commitment to it is, is a first step in trying to improve the, the, the experience that a lot of people have got of, of burnout in their work environment. Right. Well, agreed. Totally agreed. Um, and granted, some people trying meeting free days are not doing such a brilliant job of them and that people complain that, yeah, that's just an excuse for my boss to schedule a meeting anyway. Yes. But we're, the point is not the meeting free day. The point is control of your schedule. And I think that's the part we have to get back to allowing people some time to control what they do with their time and how they spend their time and what they think is most useful in their time. Um, another one that I have observed for years is when leaders are trying to do change, they're trying to drive change. I often, I do believe that you have much more success when you lay out the change. Yes, the rational arguments for the change and so on. And we're not going to negotiate that the change needs to happen, but we can talk about how it's executed. So giving people some say of how we move this forward. I also think it dramatically increases people's tolerance of the change, willingness to accept the change. Another example, those micro degrees of control in people's lives. One of the other ones we're seeing at the moment too is people, organizations who've said any announcement of any numbers of required to be back in the office days 
whether it's one, two, three, four, five, is meeting with massive <laughs> disruption. And it's the fact that you're requiring it as opposed to letting people choose what works for them. So some degree of control. All right, let's shift and talk about identity. So give me an example of what, it sounds like one of those psychological constructs. Give me an example of what you mean by identity and how this works. Yeah, um, I think knowing ourselves and feeling confident that we are seen as ourselves and, and that others see us in the same way plays a really big part. And what you, um, in, in people's sense of resilience, and you witness some remarkable stories of this. People who say, I, I didn't really know who I was in the moment I discovered who I was. I, it was it was able to set me on the, the direction that I I now feel is, is my correct direction. Or you witness examples of um, individuals feeling that maybe they... Their, their identity was formative and it was only when they really recognized how they connected with the people around them and the access points to that, it played a really critical part. I think in the extremes, you gave an example earlier that one of the things that we often have to counsel people who experienced adverse uh, childhoods, that quite often the, the route for them to get back to recovery is to remind them that they are their identity is not what they experienced, and one of the things that we can see when when children who have had uh, really challenging upbringings, one of the things that has been proven has got a very strong track record at getting them back into a much better place. And the people who study this stuff are emphatic that you can get most most children back into a much better place than where they started. But one of those things is reminding them that they are how they that they are not their experiences but they are who they are in the world who they aspire to be and who who they are in the world and so um our identity plays such an important part and the really interesting thing about trauma is that when we look at trauma one thing that is often described about trauma is the reason why trauma is so incredibly potent is that it often serves to shatter our sense of self mm -hmm. And so you, see, you might see examples of this when combat soldiers uh, re return from service and they feel uh, really scared to reveal their true identities to maybe their loved ones and these, be these beautiful and heartbreaking testimonies in some of the writing where people report that, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to show myself truly to my family because they might judge me for who I am. And in those cases, it's all about knowing that the support of like-minded friends is incredibly potent. One of the things that comes from these groups is that they often in service are surrounded with people who understand them and in retirement are divorced of that. And, and actually, if we can just remind people in those situations, for example, that surrounding yourself lifelong with people who understand your lived experience is one of the most protective things that can happen. And that might be just being part of groups. But it's just a good reminder, actually, that our identity, when, uh, when it works well, can serve to embolden us. And when, when it feels damaged can be probably one of the single most potent things that brings about our sense of depression, anxiety, and, and sort of self-doubt, really. So this speaks strongly to people working in um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, trying to create an environment where people from a different group or a different background, a minority background, um, feel that they can be accepted and can be themselves. 
So part of what we're trying to do is to help those individuals have a full sense of identity, if you will, in the work environment and not feel that they have to become somebody else in order to fit and to belong. And that sounds like very similar work. This is how, you know, we talk about in the work environment, microaggressions, those small things that are get said that you might ignore normally, but they tend to pile up and they tend to not, you know, you just start to feel pretty bad about it. And having a strong sense of personal identity is important in this process, not the only piece, but an important part. Well, I was really struck. I, um, I, in the midst of the pandemic, I was trying to get my head around. I, I run a podcast about workplace culture and about the, the way that we interact with our jobs. And I was trying to get my head around how organisations were going to make sense of this. And I was really struck that I met two or three organisations um, in the course of a few weeks who'd introduced community managers. And so I was thinking, okay, I asked them, why have you got a community manager? And they said, well, in the if you imagine when we were together physically present, you might have an office manager. You might have someone who arranged some bit of entertainment that was going to happen, a bake sale or, you know, a, a fundraising event. There were people who curated that experience and a community manager merely does this online. And the first question I had for them was, okay, what do you do? And I was thinking that the, what they would seek to do is to try and make everyone together feel connected in a sort of very homogenous, but joyfully homogenous way that we're all part of company X and we're all proud to be part of company X. And rather than that, actually, they spoke about a very different process. They said, it's about trying to find the pockets of of individual identity, the runners at this company, the mothers at this company, the uh, the members of different racial subgroups, the members of different um, sexual and, and gender groups, the the um, trying to find little pockets where people feel, oh, there's someone like me who works here, and then from there it might be just yoga people, and in my from th- then from there the aggregation of those things that people feel, oh, my identity is encompassed in this broad community. And actually, I feel understood here. And so that was what I was really struck by, actually to build this community, this aggregation of all of us, and for it to feel real. It often starts with making sure that people feel that my individual identity is reflected. And I think that for me was so intriguing that the, maybe the way that we're going to find a route to a better way of working and a, a place where we all feel understood and and really celebrated is not only this collective identity, but also making sure that our I, individual, individual identities feel um, celebrated in those environments, really. And some of those more personal identities, not just the job function that I serve, um, but my personal identity beyond that has fellow comrades in the workplace as well. I, mm. I tell you in my work, I see this every day, how powerful that is. If you're listening to this and I haven't gotten involved in this, I can tell you one of the single problems that's happening for any of these minority groups and especially for women is that they feel isolated. And that hits their personal identity of I have to be like those men over there, for example. And that is becomes a problem. And getting them connected to people who are having a comparable experience is one of the antidotes that really makes a difference in helping their careers progress. And that one I will, I can promise you is a key to success, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We were talking about the importance of identity. And at times being able to reframe your identity, like if you change roles or you change jobs, I've got to change my identity. 
I have a work identity. I have a personal identity. And I need to feel that those are understood, appreciated, can be recognized and seen. Okay. And all sorts of exercises that you can go through to help you decide what it is that you want to discover about identity. Purpose or values are often starting places for that one. But it strikes me, Bruce, that these lead very quickly to the cornerstone notion, which is the third one, and that's the sense of community. And before I let you loose on this one, I just want to highlight a comment from Ryan Jenkins, unconnectable, 72% of the world's adult population at work is feeling significantly isolated and lonely, 72%. That says to me, community is somehow being lost. So how does this all fit into building a sense of identity, Bruce? Yeah, well, absolutely. One of the critical questions that you possibly know is that one of the biggest determinants of whether we feel engaged by our job is whether we've got a friend at work. And mm-hmm. it seems so trivial, but of course we, we understand it from our own experience, but it feels so trivial when, you know, if you were to be the manager of someone or actually your own experience to, to think, Oh, I've got no one here that really understands me or I understand them. You know, it's, it's actually incredibly isolated experience. And it's just an important reminder that emotions play a part and a sense of belonging plays a really critical part in all yeah. of our experiences, whether we choose them to, to do that or not. Um, and I think, you know, this is most, most powerful. When we look into human experience, what we find is that the more connected we feel to those around us, it has uh, a really critical impact on our uh, on our health. Actually, um, there was a an experiment done a few years ago that sought to um, repeat that very famous Stanford Prison experiment that was done um, in the in the nineteen seventies, and it, this this repeat this UK repeat. Um, uh, made one fundamental change. They started monitoring in the manner of sort of the way that a, a smartwatch would do it now. But they started monitoring people's heart measurements and, and their skin responsivity. And what they discovered very quickly is that the guards in this experiment, who ended up being effectively the losers in the repeat of it, the BBC mm-hmm. repeat of it, ended up their stress levels were off the charts. And uh, the prisoners, in fact, were loving it. They were sort of united in this communion. They were, they were being mischievous. They were, they were playing games. And one of the things that was learned from it was that the guards, even though they were physically around each other, they felt isolated. They felt morally and emotionally isolated. And it had uh, just this disproportionate impact in terms of their levels of stress, their levels of burnout. And through that, the experimenters hadn't really necessarily set out to measure those things. They were only asked to do that because the broadcaster asked them to make sure they made provisions for people's well-being. But it gave them this remarkable data that we, number one, could be surrounded by people and feel isolated. But secondly, those feelings of isolation have a huge toll on us. And look, you know, we find that this is one of the most um, easily repeated pieces of psychological evidence that when people feel disconnected and not part of a group, it has an impact on pretty much every part of their experience. It can make even the the most joyous experiences feel completely isolating and lonely. Um, So I think this is a really important lesson. Firstly, there's a lot of us now who maybe maybe regard ourselves as fortunate to be able to work from home or that we we find ourselves not necessarily 
having to make long commutes and it feels like a, a valuable uh, saving of time. And in fact, what we might ask ourselves is, okay, but let's make sure that we don't lose a sense of connectedness from that. Right. Now, right. during right. the, I think during the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of us found that our local neighborhoods were something that we, we, we were we able to lean into, to. or yeah. um, actually our friendship groups were something that were able to be more rewarding for us. But I think the, the most critical learning is that we, we need to make sure that these play a valuable contributor to our lived experience, that feeling part of a community is one of the most important things for any of us. And finding a way to nurture our friendship groups and nurture the groups that we're part of seems to, um, to, to pay strong dividend, really. So that has implications if I'm thinking about uh, doing hoteling to making sure that people don't lose connection when their desks are moving around every day. It has implications for where I put the coffee machines to make sure that people have a gathering spot. It has implications about looking at my team and making sure individuals in that team are actually connected with each other. It has implications about running team events that actually allow us to feel a sense of community coming back. I mean, there's just implications through this one all the way through about how we lead in our organizations. Bruce, I think I could keep talking for another hour on this one, but sadly, we're out of time. So thank you for being a guest today. It's my immense honor. Thank you, Wanda. All right. Bruce Daisley, the book is called Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. My summary highlight of this one is very simple. If you want people in your organization to have greater resilience, then you need to have them a better sense, have a better sense of personal identity and recognize that they're not the only ones there with that identity. Two is they need to have some degree of control over what they do on a daily basis, small degree of control. And three, they need to feel that they're part of a broader sense of community. And if that's not a strong enough uh, statement for how to build resilience organizations, I don't know what is. Join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you like these ideas, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.